Alison. Hi, Sarah. So Mr Z has finally officially launched his bid to become France's next president. Mr Z, Mr Z, he who will not be named. (laughs) Eric Zemmour. Go on, say it. Yeah, Eric Zemmour. He's the far-right political pundit. He's been convicted of hate speech twice, um, and he's pushed political discourse in France to the right over the last few months. Very anti-immigrant, anti-Islam, and he really doesn't hold back any punches. He's been very successful. Uh, but the much-awaited launch of his political campaign on Tuesday was a bit less of a success. Mes chers compatriotes, il n'est plus temps de réformer la France, mais de la sauver. C'est pourquoi j'ai décidé de me présenter à l'élection présidentielle. Well, yes, so this is a taste of his 10-minute video in which he talks about, I don't want to reform France, I want to save it. He reads from his notes, and he's accompanied by the second movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. Yeah, and he's sitting in what looks like a library, surrounded by leather-bound books. He's talking into a microphone that's exactly like the one that General Charles de Gaulle used in his 18th of June 1940 rallying cry from London. Very emblematic. Vous vous souvenez du pays que vous avez connu dans votre enfance? Vous vous souvenez du pays que vos parents vous ont décrit? Remember the country of your childhood, he says. Remember the country your parents described, or the one you see in films or books. And he shows black and white and sepia photos of things like Notre Dame, villages with church bells. The whole thing is seeped in nostalgia for what is basically a bygone era that he says is disappearing. And that if it ever may, existed. Exactly, may have never existed in the first place. And in oh. contrast, Everything he opposes, there's images of the PSG footballers who are taking a knee to protest racism. He puts clips of the Council of Europe's campaign that defends the hijab. And in the video, we've got photos of politicians, Charles de Gaulle, of course, but also uh, Jean Moulin and popular French figures like Jean Gabin, uh, Brigitte Bardot, Jean-Paul Belmondo, Georges Brassens. <laughs> Lord knows what he would, as an anarchist, would have thought of his picture being used on a clip like this. Yeah, Yeah, and and there's the problem, too, because it turns out Zemmour did not get permission to Mm. use all this footage. Copyright's a very big deal here in France, especially in political campaigns. Some media organizations like uh, France 3 and our sister station, France 24, they've lodged complaints, as has the INA archives, and they're demanding that their content be removed from this video. It's made Zemmour's campaign team appear very amateurish, uh, and if they do end up having to pay, it could run into tens of thousands of euros. Yeah, not cheap. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, Zemmour later appeared on primetime TV for his first official interview as candidate, and that didn't go down very well either. He came across as rather ill at ease. He tried to justify the fact he'd given the middle finger to a member of the public in Marseille earlier in the week. He said it had been an exasperating day, mm. uh, and he called the journalist after the programme uh, a connard, a bloody idiot. Yeah. <laughs> This is just the beginning. Mm-hmm. We have how many months until the election? Five. Five? I don't know. Feels like this is going to be a rough ride. Et dans nos envies de plage, du VA et du VB, j'en vois quelques-uns qui nagent vers ce qu'on a déjà coulé. Ils iront sur la banquise, passer quelques mois d'été. Photographier quelques plages pour un peu de monnaie. Le monde a changé. So, Alison, you remember the Paris Agreement? <laughs> ah, yes, those lofty ideals all about cutting 
greenhouse gas emissions to keep global temperatures from rising more than 1.5 or maximum 2 degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, hopefully, but I don't think we're going to get there. That was, of course, at the COP21, the UN Climate Conference here in Paris in 2015. We just had the COP26 in Scotland and really having trouble getting countries to commit to cutting emissions. The EU is committed to getting to net zero by 2050. France is committed to cutting emissions by 40% by 2030. And to get there, of course, we need green energy. There's Mm. a massive search for greener energy, lower emissions. And of course, most of France's electricity currently comes from nuclear, Mm -hmm. which doesn't uh, give uh, emissions, although uh, there are other issues, of course. (laughs) Yeah, like safety, radioactive waste, finding the uranium in the Mm -hmm. first place. So anyway, there is a focus then on renewables. I mean, wind, solar, that kind of thing. But the issue comes up with how to store that energy. Petroleum, it turns out, is actually a very good way to store energy. I mean, you can transport it. You can keep it for weeks or months. Renewable energy, I mean, you think like when the windmills are turning, you Mm. need to use the energy. Where do you do with it otherwise? Battery technology isn't quite up to par. Components are also hard to get, rare metals and all that kind of thing. So enter hydrogen. You can make it with electricity and water, and it's a gas, so you can store it to use it later in a fuel cell. And its outputs are water and oxygen. Mm. In November, President Emmanuel Macron announced billions of euros in investment in green hydrogen to have France become the leader in this technology by 2030. Green hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Yeah, it turns out there are all different shades of hydrogen. Whoa. Green, gray, blue. So at the base, right, hydrogen is a molecule, one of three in water, two hydrogens, one oxygen, H2O. Um, you can run electricity through water in a process called electrolysis, and it separates the molecules, and you can capture the hydrogen. If that electricity comes from renewables, that hydrogen is green. Okay. These days, though, most hydrogen is extracted from fossil fuels, Hydrocarbons is hydrogen and carbon. But of course, when you burn that, you release the carbon. It makes greenhouse gas emissions. That hydrogen is gray. Blue hydrogen is produced the same way, but the CO2 emissions are captured and reused or stored. Hmm. Okay, so green hydrogen is clearly the cleanest. Mm -hmm. What is hydrogen currently used for? Uh, For now, mostly used to make fertilizer. Also, steel processing uses hydrogen. But there are high hopes of it being used as a fuel for transportation, particularly long-distance transport or for large machinery, for which electric batteries doesn't make much sense. So, it sounds like green hydrogen is uh, the simple solution. Yeah, yeah. Of course, there's always downsides. But it's also only recently become a reality. Um, I wanted to see what's going on. I went to see what's being billed as the world's very first green hydrogen production plant here in France on the coast of Brittany. And on the way, I stopped in Nantes, a city that likes to see itself as innovative and is itself experimenting with hydrogen. One of the first things I did in Nantes was to get into a small utility vehicle at a tram depot run by the Semitant, the city's public transport agency. System ready? I hope so. That's Raphael Lecoq, an engineer with the Semitant, which has been experimenting with hydrogen vehicles for the past few years. We're in one of the agency's two Renault Kangoo vans, part of its fleet of maintenance vehicles. It's a pretty standard van, except that written on the white exterior is zero emissions and I run on hydrogen. It's an electric vehicle, so it runs very silently, but it has an added hydrogen tank that extends the battery's range from 100 to 300 kilometers. The exhaust that comes out of a tube of the side of the van is just water vapor. What is good with hydrogen is that with electricity and water, you can produce uh, hydrogen. 
many people think it's uh, the energy of the future because uh, hydrogen is a good way to store uh, energy. Stéphane Bies is a technical and project director at Semiton. I wouldn't say it is the energy of, of the future. I think the future will include hydrogen, that is sure, especially for heavy load vehicle, for long transit, because the problem with long distance vehicle is that uh, if you use battery, you need a very big weight of battery. That is why hydrogen uh, is probably a very interesting uh, alternative. Nantes has experimented with a hydrogen-powered ferry that takes commuters across the Elde River in the north of the city. The Semiton bought these utility vehicles in 2016 to explore the technology. Up. Voilà. And also to test a hydrogen filling station they put in place at a bus depot. The filling station is basically a group of tall, narrow hydrogen tanks that feed into a machine that looks a lot like the pumps at a regular gas station. There's a tube with a nozzle, but this one snaps into the car. Lecoq pushes some buttons on the machine, and it starts running. Hydrogen's a gas, so it's measured out not in liters, like for gas or diesel, but in bars of pressure. Filling the tank is like filling a balloon. A full tank is 350 bars of pressure, which is pretty high. Just for comparison, a bicycle tire is inflated to about four bars. Hydrogen is a very light gas. The van's tank holds about two kilos. A fully hydrogen car holds about six or seven. So this is a lightweight energy made from water that produces no emissions when it burns. But electricity is required to separate hydrogen from oxygen and water, and also to compress it. And the hydrogen at this station was made with electricity from the grid. So here in France, that means from nuclear energy, which at peak times is also supplemented with fossil fuel. But green hydrogen does exist. Here on the coast, an hour west of Nantes, 10 wind turbines in a row are turning at full speed in the high wind. The first three are connected directly to a facility a kilometer and a half away. The system is synchronized with the wind turbines, so if there's no wind, there's no hydrogen. Antoine Amont is the director of operations of LIFE, the startup that runs this production facility, which started producing green hydrogen in September. The plant is a warehouse. It's divided into two sections. The one we're allowed into has two containers that are filtering seawater pumped in from the Atlantic Ocean next door. That's then pumped into the tank in the other half of the building, the electrolyzer, which runs electricity through the water to separate the hydrogen and the oxygen molecules. The two sections are separated by a thick concrete wall because large quantities of hydrogen are flammable. But we can look through the windows at a maze of colorful pipes. So here you have the electrolyzer and all the water is in the purple pipes. And outside of the electrolyzer you have two colors. The white color is oxygen and the yellow pipe is hydrogen. The hydrogen is purified and pressurized into containers which can then be transported to whomever needs the hydrogen. Hydrogen is a way to store electricity. It's a storage, it's a gas. This is why our societies, they run on diesel, they run on gas, because it's convenient. You can store that in a pipe, on a truck, in a boat. Mathieu Guenet is the CEO of LIFE, which he started in 2017. Back in 2017, when we started the company, I can tell you we were not even pioneers, we were a visionary. Nobody was aware of the need for green hydrogen back in 2017. 
But now everyone's aware Europe is pushing hydrogen. It's a local energy source which allows energy to be stored. For example, wind turbines that run in the middle of the night, that electricity isn't necessarily going to be used on the grid. So what do you do with it? If it's turned into hydrogen, it can be transported and used elsewhere later. It's more efficient than batteries for many usages. The electrical car, they have limited range. So when you need to heavy-duty vehicles, when you need to run for long range, hydrogen was the missing piece of the puzzle. Uh, today, we have biogas, we have smart grids, we have batteries, we have renewables. Uh, we know what we need to do. But there, there was kind of a problem for trucks or buses, and this is the last piece of the puzzle. Hmm. So, a lovely puzzle there, <laughs> with uh, lots of green hydrogen components. It sounds almost too good to be true. Well, for sure. I mean, safety is an issue. Compressed, flammable gas, I mean, you do have to be careful to transport it and store it, mm. especially when you're scaling up. You know, this is still a small scale. This facility is producing 300 kilos of hydrogen a day, going up to a ton when it gets up to full speed. It's enough to fill 700 hydrogen cars. A lot, but not yeah. very many when you think of European scales. Mm. Um, if done correctly, though, it does seem as though hydrogen could be a very interesting source of energy. Uh, this company, Life, has ambitions of installing offshore hydrogen plants using very large turbines in the sea and seawater. So everything will run with hydrogen, well, in the next few years? <laughs> if you talk to the CEO, Mathieu Guinet, well, yeah, of course. He yeah. says 25 to 30 percent of French energy will be hydrogen by 2030. Others put that number more like 6 to 10 percent. He, of course, is a proselytizer. That's his job. Um, but hydrogen does have a role, and France, in any case, is banking on it. Le Chant des Canus, this is a, a famous workers' song that uh, sometimes shows up, Sarah, in protest marches and leftist meetings. Canu, C-A-N-U-T, is the name for silk workers in France who 190 years ago revolted in what is now considered the first workers' protest of the Industrial Revolution. Canu comes from the French word canette, right? That means bobbin. Yeah, uh, although canu, the, the term was sometimes used in a pejorative mm. way. On December the 3rd, 1831, French authorities finally managed to put down the revolt. It was all happening in the city of Lyon, which had become the capital of the European silk trade after Louis XI brought over master silk weavers from neighbouring Italy. That was in 1466. And by the middle of the 17th century, the industry had really taken off and over 14,000 looms were operating in Lyon. And the silk industry was employing about a third of the city's population. So big business. Especially for the merchants. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> the canoe weavers themselves, they were working in small workshops, often in their homes, in fact. And they sold the pieces of silk to the merchants. 
they were paid not by the hour, but on piecework. So rather long hours, poor conditions often, and not much job security. It sounds like today's delivery workers are Uber drivers. Yeah, there is a link there. And in fact, yeah, protesting delivery couriers in 2017 compared themselves to Canu. Anyway, all came to a head in 1831 when there was a drop in demand for silk. The merchants stopped buying and the canoes found themselves with a big drop in wages. And so we get a revolution. A mini one, anyway. <laughs> they launched protests to push for fixed tariffs on silk, basically a, a minimum price. Manufacturers were opposed to this. They said that it would interfere in the free market. There was no opportunity to negotiate. And on November the 21st, 1831, several hundred canoes marched in protest. It turned into a battle when the National Guard and the military were called out. The following night, the canoes were joined by workers in other industries and together they seized control of the old part of Lyon and the mayor had to flee in panic. It all turned rather bloody, but it appeared to have worked in a way because the prefect accepted the canoes' main demand, a fixed price for silk, and so the workers went back to work a week later. So a revolt in Lyon. I mean, I can't imagine this was well received in Paris. Certainly wasn't. King mm. Louis-Philippe couldn't, well, could hardly let a bunch of silk workers take over France's second biggest city. He sent down an army of 20,000 men, led by his son, the Duke of Orleans, to restore order. And on December the 3rd, the army regained control of the city. The prefect was dismissed, 90 workers were arrested, and the minimum price for silk was ditched. The government built a garrison, by the way, to separate the area where the canoes worked, the Croix-Rousse, and cannons were pointed in their direction just to show them who was boss. Yeah, yeah, flexing the muscles there. So the canoes lost. I mean, was that the end of the issue? It wasn't. There was another canoe revolt three years later in 1834. The silk industry had started booming again, and manufacturers this time round thought the canoes were being paid too much. Mm. <laughs> so the free market's only allowed to work in one direction. Exactly. The interior <laughs> minister actually wrote to the king and saying there was simply fabulous prosperity in the silk industry, huge orders from America, and workers were now earning six to seven francs per day. A lot of money, in his <laughs> opinion, too much. The canoes protested in April of that year, but the revolt was crushed very quickly and brutally this time round. It came to be known as the Semaine Sanglante, or Bloody Week. That second revolt, however, did lead to some social progress. Uh, there was a fixed fee, for example, that controlled prices between weavers and manufacturers, and a special fund to provide loans for master weavers with families was set up. One of the canoes' mottos, vivre en travaillant ou mourir en combattant, live to work or die fighting, is engraved on the city hall of Lyon's Croix-Rousse neighbourhood where most of those silk-weaving workshops were. Depuis que je n'ai pas le droit, je veux un enfant dans le vent. J'aurais sûrement dû taire parfois L'envie si grande et menaçante Depuis que mes amis me mentent Qu'ils disent que je suis comme les autres Je veux un enfant dans le ventre Qu'on s'aime, qu'on ait une vie grandiose 
So you remember, Sarah, IVF, medically assisted procreation, became available to single women and women couples just a few months ago now. Yeah, because until now, right, sperm donation and fertility treatments had only been available to infertile heterosexual couples. Um, the change was hailed as big progress for women's rights and gay rights in particular. Yeah, and up till then, if you wanted to access IVF without being in a heterosexual couple, well, you had no choice but to go abroad. Yeah, yeah. I remember we spoke to a woman in the show. Um, she went to Spain, right, for a sperm donor. Yeah, many, many, many women have done that. Since the new decree, lots of women have been rushing to get IVF here in France. The demands have exploded up to threefold compared to the same time last year. The problem is the system is now struggling to keep up with. Uh, demand. I spoke to Eloine Fouillou, uh, who with her partner went to Belgium to have IVF uh, several years ago. Their children are now 9 and 14. But as vice president of an association called Les Enfants d'Arc-en-Ciel, the Rainbow Children, she's now very active in helping other women. We're supposed to be all equal in this country. So I think it was about time that all women could have access to the same treatments if she has fertility problems. But for the moment, it's still very difficult. There are just too many people. <laughs> There's a real surge in demand. All these women who've been waiting for so long, and now it's like, hey, we can do it. So there's a bottleneck. Yes, it's not so much a problem of the lack of sperm donors, which will probably be a problem later on. But for the moment, the main problem is just that, well... <laughs> There's just no way to find appointments. So it's a lack of staff, is it, in the clinics and the hospitals? It's really the problem, a lack of staff. Because unlike straight couples, uh, lesbian couples can't go to any clinic. The fertility treatment is going to be uh, using sperm donors. And it's only the SECOs that take care of sperm donors. SECOs being the sort of state-run clinics. It's a place where they get the sperm and uh, the eggs, and there are very few, maybe a dozen in France. So what are the members of your association telling you in terms of the waiting times? Apparently, we're talking about six to 12 months delay, but we're not really sure what it will be like in six to 12 months. There are so many people who are waiting, so we don't really know, actually. So is this creating a tremendous sense of frustration? Do you feel that the government should have anticipated this? Of course, you have to hire people and the centres are usually in hospitals. So if you send money to the hospital thinking that it will take care of the hiring of secretaries, but the hospital is lacking money, obviously it's not going to be a priority. And yes, of course it should have been anticipated. Many things about this law should have been more anticipated. And you would think that they had time to think about it. Yeah, because it took at least two years to get this law through Parliament. And it was prepared long before that. I mean, it's not as if there were no problems prior to that in the fertility centres. They've been needing money and they've been needing real information campaigns about sperm and egg donation. It's still a, a big taboo. So, of course, we are lacking donors. On this question of sperm donation, one aspect of the law uh, will be the end of anonymity for donors. Yes. What are your feelings on that? Is that a good thing or not? Well, actually, it was a demand that was made from many, well, adults now, but children 
who were uh, born thanks to sperm donors and who really had a problem with not knowing who their donor was. I mean, why not? There is no obligation for children to go looking. They will just have a possibility to do it if they feel the need. So now, well, of course, it's going to be different for donors. How would you feel about your children having access? Well, I just had this discussion with my 14-year-old daughter, and she thinks that, well, she doesn't want to know anything about a donor because it's just not part of her life. She doesn't care. But maybe some others do. I've got two wonderful children that are not his children. It just enabled me to have them. And that's wonderful, but he's still not their father. We did hear a lot of that kind of talk, didn't we, uh, in France? And, you know, and making children without fathers, this kind of thing, from those who oppose IVF for single women and lesbian couples. And even people who are not opponents still think that a donor, a sperm donor, is a father that the children don't know. And that's the reason why it's so difficult to talk about egg and sperm donation. It's the reason why it's difficult to find donors. I was reading that some associations representing women who are using fertility treatments on their own or as part of a gay couple have encountered discrimination when they were trying to get appointments. That's something that we've heard about. And to be honest, that's not a surprise. We know that many people were against this law and some of them are now in a position where they can decide to give an appointment or not because there's a, po- a shortage in appointments. But we don't think it's something structural. And I think that anyway, it will no longer be a problem when all centers will have managed to hire enough people to fix all the appointments. And when they can't get an appointment, are some women continuing to go to countries like Spain and Belgium, which was the case before the law was passed? Well, of course, because many women have already started a protocol in Spain or in Belgium or in other countries. So they're not going to stop their treatment and try to get an appointment in France. I'm just intrigued to know why it's so much quicker in a country like Belgium or Spain. They've been doing it for a long time and it's available in many, many private or public clinics. So they've got staff, they've got enough donors also because, well, in many countries, donors get a retribution, which is not the case in France. They get paid, yeah. So, of course, they have less difficulty to find donors. So do you think France should have introduced payment for sperm and egg donors? I think it would have solved a problem of shortage. But I can understand why they chose not to do it. But it's kind of frustrating. And in France, it's going to take time for the donors, especially for women, to make a donation. Egg donation is not something that is as easy as sperm donation, obviously. Do you know any women who have given their eggs? Yes, I do. Most people who donate are actually people who have personal experience of fertility treatments. I planned on doing it, actually. I planned on doing it in Belgium because I wanted to give back to Belgium. 
but uh, I couldn't do it because um, there's a, a disease that runs in my family. Also, well, I think that's something we don't talk about in France. You just don't realize the struggles that many people around you went through towards their children. And if you don't witness it, well, you don't feel the need for donors. If we talked more about it, if there were real campaigns, many people would think, yeah, why not? But for the moment, fertility treatments are still a secret and we don't talk about sperm or egg donations, then it's not something that is very positive for us who have created a family thanks to donors. We understand the price of this gift. It's the most beautiful thing. So our donors are not part of our family, but we always talk about our donors in very positive terms because, well, they're like a little hero <laughs> for us. So it sounds like there's a real long ways to go here, at least mm. in changing mentalities, to get more sperm and, and egg donors um, in France. Is there anything being done, you know, officially to try to catch up? Well, in September, the health minister said the government's goal was to reduce waiting times for IVF uh, to six months for everyone. And it has handed out eight million euros mm. Mm, to help with hiring extra staff. But let's be honest, you don't find the people overnight. Sure. So there is lots of hope. But in reality, a lot of women are still going to be traveling to Belgium and Spain. That's it for the show. If you like what you heard, let us know. You can send comments or questions to spotlight.france at rfi.fr. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani, and you can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Instagram. Look for us at Spotlight on France. We'll be back on Thursday, December the 16th. Until then, bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye-bye, Sarah.